You're tuned in to the Vintage House Show, home to the original stories of the history of house music as told by the legends, pioneers, and icons. Hosted by Kevin Mega McFall, Lori Branch, and Lauren Lowry. Hey, it's your main man, Mega, and we're here for another incredible episode of the Vintage House Show. The Vintage House Show on WNUR FM 89.3 in HD1, WNUR.org, and on Facebook Live, and of course, Twitch.tv. The Vintage House Show is the premier on-air radio show and podcast dedicated to illuminating and preserving the lives, music, careers, and history of house music pioneers. We're powered by the Modern Dance Music Research and Archiving Foundation, which is the only repository in the United States dedicated solely to the study, preservation, and the celebration of the genres of house and dance music. Our mission, in short, is to preserve the memories, the memorabilia, the artifacts, and the stories that support the sustainability and the future of the culture that is house music. I'm honored uh, with a, an incredible guest whose uh, story is a bit different than some of the stories we've helped share on the Vintage House Show in the past, but not diminished in any way in terms of the importance of building the foundation and the architecture of this thing we call house music. And so with that, I'd love to take a moment and introduce our audience to this episode's guest, Mr. Lionel Brazil. Lionel, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm good, man. How are you? Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on the show. And congratulations. You guys are doing a fantastic job. Um, I'm, I'm a Chicagoan, so uh, it's wonderful to see. <clears throat> well, we certainly appreciate that, uh, of course. Uh, part of our uh, important narrative is that Chicago is the home of house music. And as such, uh, we're working to, to own that narrative before it you know, seeps into uh, other parts of the world as, as we witness that happening. Uh, tell us where you're joining us from today. Right now, I'm in the Netherlands, um, just uh, a little distance from uh, Amsterdam, which by all accounts is the epicenter of house music now in the world. Uh, so I'm, I'm based, my, my studio um, where I work out of is Amsterdam and I fly out of Schiphol. So yeah, I'm, 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 I'm Dutch now, <laughs> but awesome. born and raised in Chicago. Uh, holding on to those roots as important as they are, uh, but certainly you've spread your wings and uh, taken uh, Amsterdam, I'm sure, by storm. Uh, so let's let's talk about some of those beginnings uh, and roots in Chicago. You're uh, south, no, west sider, right? No, well, I grew up on the south side. I'm I'm a Creole. Both my parents are Creole, so I, I started school in Louisiana. I was born in yes. Chicago on the west side, and then my parents split, and I ended up with my great grandmother in Louisiana. And so when I came back, um, when I was 10 years old, I, came, I went to South Shore. I, I, so I grew up in the South Shore area. Yes. We so were, I claim the South Side. 
All right. Well, South Shore, um, stand up. All those listening who are alum of South Shore High School. Uh, I went there. And you graduated in the uh, in the early 80s. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Gradu- uh, my graduating class was 79, but I ended up coming out of 80. Okay. Was, was that part of uh, the the transition and moving around a bit or? How do you mean? The, the 79 was your class, but you graduated in 1980. Yeah, I just didn't have enough credits on my graduating class. I was fooling around and involved in other stuff and, you know, took me a minute, but I got out. Yeah, well, the nightlife, of Chicago, particularly in the late seventies, early eighties, had a grip on many of us, and that and that's well, what that's what that was the problem. I was out every night. I was I started partying in seventy seven. Um, I was skating before I discovered sort of you know the clubs up north, and so uh, yeah, seventy seven, seventy eight is uh, yeah. I was already at after hours, and you know I'd been to, to most of the clubs up north, and uh, when the warehouse opened, I was there. So. Yeah, 161. I, I, yeah, I was still in high school. I, well, we appreciate you uh, and that candor around that story. Uh, I want to go back to something you slipped in there for us a little bit was we're skating. Skating is certainly taking a bit of a, a, a comeback in terms of uh, the current generation of folks. Talk to us about what was skating life uh, like back then? Well, it was it was everything in Chicago. Um, you know, my, I lived in South Shore, so my home rink was the rink on um, 79th and Colfax. And so it was skating rinks all over the city. And so my mom skated, everybody I knew skated. So skating, you know, was almost like four or five days a week you know, Tuesdays, we went to one place, you know, I'm not, I'm sorry, Roller World was the name of my, uh, my home skating rink. The rink was on uh, 95th and, um, and uh, by Princeton Park. But, um, you know, Markham every Saturday, Har- uh, um, Arts Harvey. Har- and Harvey, yeah. yes. So we went yeah, and they played organs too. So from 75 to about 77, that's all I did. I mean, I skated every, maybe maybe even 74 to 77. All I did was skate and I became pretty popular and well known because I was a decent skater. And so I could go to any skating rink and people knew me and, you know, I skated where I wanted. I could skate doing women's. I could skate doing couples because I just, you know, was one of those kind of guys. Uh, but yeah, skating first was 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 everything that was part of my original sort of entry into nightlife um going out like going to the midnight ramble when i was supposed to be 18 and i got in because i could skate and i knew the the ushers and things like that um and i would go with older guys or my mom and long and short of it is um what disrupted that was i had a cousin um who was a little older than i had a couple of cousins who were a little older than me and they had already started going to clubs up north um, one of my cousins was gay and he told me about, uh, Ron Hardy and, um, the den, den one. So I went, um, 
And, you know, once I, I got in that scene and then went to the first uh, party Robert Williams gave, I want to say that might have been this place called 161, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'm sure there's some fact checkers uh, that watch your show that can help me with that. But then we ended up at U.S. Studio, and I think that was 78. Um, and, yeah, you know, everything changed for me. Um I, I started going to clubs on the north side um, and and literally stopped skating completely. Um, was into art and fashion. And as I was saying to Lauren a couple of days ago, um, I started going to the north side about um, 77. Uh, I was dating an older girl that went to Unity. Her name was Carrie Payne, beautiful girl, wonderful. I hope Carrie's doing well. Hi, Carrie, uh, if you get this, you hear this. Um, and she, one time she said, Lano, you want to go to the north side? I'm like, what's the north side? Like, what's happening up there? She was like, we got to go. So we got on the train and went to the north side. And this is when Century Mall first opened. So the shops oh, wow. weren't even all there yet. Um, and it blew my mind because, you know, Chicago being one of the most segregated cities in the world, um, it was mind blowing that it was so inclusive, you know, there was white people, Asian people, Latin people, straight, gay, this, that, everything. And everybody, you know, was kind of, you know, it was a melting pot. And that just blew my mind because I'm, I'm Creole, coming from Louisiana, um, I'm part Native American, Indian, um, African, and French. And so the first language at, in my house was French or Creole. Um, so I was used to sort of diversity. Um, my grandmother was, um, you know, red or darker skinned, but she only spoke French. Um, my, my grandfather's mother was lighter. She could pass for white. She only spoke French. And so that diversity in my, in my culture, in my upbringing sort of affected my consciousness. So when I got to the North side and, and saw what was going on, I completely, you know, it just just dove right into the deep end, you know, the vintage shops, the record shops, the bookstores, the, the, the restaurants, and then the clubs. I started going to clubs in 77, 78 yes. um, and listened to disco music because, you know, the, the, the skate parties was all about the funk. It was about James Brown and Parliament and Barcase and Gap Band and that kind of stuff, um, you know, and disco music was like hip hop is now, you know, disco was, was everywhere. Um, I don't know when Saturday night fever came out, but that kind of was like the, the beacon call that, you know, everything was, was, was disco. Um, but, um, yeah, that, so that's my skate story. And then I guess I already segued into, you know, my nightlife story about, about, you know, going out to, to clubs and listening to, to disco music. Um, that was that, a nice that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I appreciated um, you taking us on that journey. I, I did want to uh, explore a little more around uh, what you sensed in terms of the North Side versus what you experienced. You know, growing up on the South Side, uh, the diversity piece was was pretty uh, poignant in terms of um, coming to that realization that within the same segregated city, there was this part of the uh, city, this neighborhood and community 
that embrace diversity and, and its inclusiveness. Uh, can you talk a, a little bit more about uh, that resonating for you and, and what else uh, resulted um, after you experienced that? Did you ever live on the North side or uh, um, you always commute between the two? Areas. Yeah, I only commuted. Um, I, I dated a girl that lived um, north side. I just was on the north side every day, um, every day I could. You know, I'd get out of school and go to the north side, especially in the spring and summer. I was always up there. Um, you know, I, since I lived in South Shore, um, transportation we had uh, what was called the I don't know what's called now, but the IC, which go, went from seventy. First and uh, exchange where South Shore meets exchange and goes all the way to uh, Randolph and Michigan under the library, which is now, I think, the cultural center. So, you know, for a dollar seventy five, I'm I'm at I'm at Randolph and, and Michigan, you know, do Magnificent Mile, hop on the Sheridan bus just to get it all in. Um, I have to point out too uh, one place that I went to that sort of helped shape the perspective and my, my consciousness um, to this day uh, was a shop on Oak Street called Fiorucci. I was gonna and ask about Fiorucci. Fiorucci was like my first stop before I went further north. I would come up Michigan Avenue and then go, go to Oak Street to Fiorucci and um, hang out there. As a matter of fact, I think um, one of the guys that helped me sort of navigate where to go in nightlife his name was uh, Benny Winfield. I think his brother is Greg Winfield, the Greg DJ. Winfield. Yes. Right. So Benny, Benny and his, his partner was a guy named Harold Cherry. And so it was Benny and Harold. And they both worked at, at Fiorucci. And Fiorucci was a complete circus. I mean, it was just like, I mean, for, for a young man of color coming from the South Side and segregation, only having seen diversity in Louisiana in my in my childhood years and then being sort of dropped in the middle of the black experience and living in that environment and and adjusting and uh, uh, assimilating to that it was mind-blowing to again see a world where everybody was okay with everybody and it had nothing to do with race color religion no matter what everybody was 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 all in and accepted everyone. And that became sort of like the, the theme and the, and the foundation for my growth because I learned a lot more about the world through literature that I got there, music, the different people that were there. Um, I, I, I got directed to art galleries and art shows, nightlife. You know, I would go there and find out what was happening. You know, it'd be a party at Neo. So Thursday night, I'd be at Neo. Um, there'd be a party at uh, Smart Bar. So Friday night, I'd be at Smart Bar. Um, there'd be a, a gallery in, in Printing District or the Printing House District or the River North or whatever it's called now. I'd yeah. be over there. Um, and there was a cool shop called City on Institute Place. City was like a concept store. They sold furniture. They sold books and um, um, some clothing and, 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 you know, different art pieces and that shaped my life. Um, but most importantly, like I said, Fiorucci helped me sort of navigate and, you know, I could go there, you know, because we didn't have social media, obviously. So if you wanted to know what was going on, you had to be at the right place, talk to the people 
and get, you know, your information and, and, and sort of create your own itinerary or, you know, where you go. And so at an early age, um, diversity in terms of my taste in music, art, fashion, and just the, the lifestyle of, of inclusiveness and, and, and artistic or creative, avant-garde, whatever you want to call it, that's what I gravitated towards. And that all happened from these little pockets in Chicago, one being Fiorucci and the rest being, you know, imports, et cetera, the record store uh, in, on Plymouth Court, which was in the West, not well, South Loop. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, which, yeah, played an important role in, in the development of what we eventually became known as house music. Um, Gramophone, um, State Street Records, uh, Loop Records, you know, you had to hit the record store, you had to hit Rizzoli, you had to hit um, um, Fiorucci, you had to hit Gramophone, like you, these were the things that we did. And I later, um, and, and also Benny Winfield went to the Art Institute. So I used to go to the Art Institute and wasn't a student. I would just show up and walk the halls, go into classes in the fashion department or the, the different art departments because I knew people that I met in the clubs and, you know, go hang out, eat lunch in the lunchroom, uh, in the cafeteria. And um, people thought I went there because I had the audacity to just walk around and didn't feel intimidated or didn't feel out of place and didn't look out of place because... I guess my style and my attitude and, and my energy uh, was such that it allowed me access to these places and, and people were forthcoming with information and I asked questions and people felt inclined to answer those questions because I was very inquisitive and I really wanted to know what was going on and, and, and why this was this way and you know what's, who's behind this and what's going on there. That's how I've always been. And I'm still that way. I'm still as inquisitive and uh, seek enlightenment and knowledge and, and, and information. Even in the information age, I'm, I'm still, I, I read still, uh, I research still. Uh, uh, I, I like authenticity. I like to uh, authenticate and, and establish a, a, a foundation or understand the foundation so that I can build, whether it be through some art that I'm doing, um, through my music, I still make music, um, which is one of the reasons why I came here. Um, yes. And um, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's and, and I find, believe it or not, I say this on, in another conversation that I had, um, Amsterdam gives me that feeling, you know, Chicago uh, and yes. that, that little pocket I was talking about kind of yes. was like downtown New York in the 80s. It was a, it was like a precursor to that, and I fell right into and when I moved to New York, I fell right in the middle of that because I was already groomed and understood what was going on, and again allowed access to certain places because of my demeanor, because of my uh, approach or whatever, what have you. But anyway, ask more questions because I'm just rambling. No, no, not not rambling at all. Again, taking us on on a journey that um, enables us to uh, make the connections as to some of the things that you've done and some of the places you've been and and uh, certainly where you are today. One and of also, too, 
uh, yes. not because, sorry to cut you off, but um, I think all the things that I'm talking about were also precursors and directly affected and influenced what we know as house music and what the essence of house music is. There's no question. And I'm, again, so glad that you joined us today because I often talk about in some of the other discussions about these other facets of the culture, such as the fashion, uh, such as the the communities and, and neighborhoods. And really what you outlined was that these social cultural epicenters and not taking anything away from another uh, collaborator of ours, the Black Social Cultural Map Group. Um, but these places and the um, attire and presence and demeanor were as intricately involved in the formation of house culture, right? 100%. As, as is the music. And, 100%. And so I want to circle back because of that curiosity and authenticity you sought, I'm curious about how that showed up when you were curating experiences yourself, the parties you threw, the DJs you hired, the venues you selected. How did, how did those things show up for you? Well, that's an that's a excellent question. Um, the, the thing about it was that because I was so diverse in my taste and and you know I was into new wave I was into punk rock I was into reggae so I would go to those I would go to the wild hair yes. um I you know I was I, I was a smart bar all the time almost every Friday or Saturday you know neo exit you know I was going to these places yes. um and so my musical taste and my my mentality was such that I needed a form. I mean, that was my formula that that I use as the, the the springboard for how I curated the events that I wanted to do. And and I and I, I think the the pivotal point was going to U.S. Studios at 206 Jefferson, or I think the first one was 161 Harrison or something like that, or 161 um, Monroe or one of those streets not far from 206. Robert Williams had a club before the warehouse. Um, or it, it, it's, I think it was in between. Anyway. Some of our fact checkers will jump in with uh, Yeah, exactly. Clarity. Yeah. Right. But anyway, but 206, once I saw that, um, it all came together and it all made sense. For me, that became the formula that, that and it is the, the formula um, um, and the, the essence of why we have nightlife the way we do, why we, we party the way we do, whether it be techno, house, any of the other subgenres that came out of what Dave Mancuso did at the Loft in 1975 in New York City. That was the formula Robert Williams brought to Chicago and brought Frankie from New York to Chicago. So that formula of um, juice bar, members only, after hours, all night, um, straight, well, it was primarily, the warehouse 206 was 99.9% .9 gay. Um, it was, in, in my understanding, designed as a safe space for gay men or gay women, um, people of the LGBTQ plus community to go and have a safe place. Again, we're talking about the late 70s Chicago. So, yes. you know, that's not, uh, 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 and also too, ironically, you know, there were clubs on the North side that were gay bars 
that had a quota of how many blacks they would let in. There was a club on the corner of um, uh, Huron and Dearborn. I can't think of the name of it right now, but a, a friend of mine, um, one of my mentors, his name was Aaron Metzler. Uh, Aaron was a DJ, a hairstylist, and his best friend was an artist named Craig Rex Perry, both legends in, in Chicago from, from that era. Craig went on to be an illustrator and was working on Boondocks, and he worked for Disney, lived in L.A. Unfortunately, both of those brothers passed on and have returned to the essence. Um, but, you know, R.I.P., and I love them dearly. But they took me to uh, this club, and because we were, you know, cool-looking younger guys, and Aaron, I think, is part either Vietnamese or uh, he was part Asian. Went to South Shore, lived in South Shore. Craig went to Limbo. We were like these fair-skinned, cool, young, tall, slim dudes that had confidence and wasn't intimidated and or bothered. We weren't homophobic, so we were allowed to participate. But I noticed the way they treated people of color, whether it was Hispanic, Black, Asian, they had a quota. So to get to back to my original point, the warehouse was primarily African-American and I'd say 85, 90% African-American and Spanish. Um, there were um, uh, white people that, that came, but very few. Um, and the, but the thing that, 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 that struck me and, and, and really left an indelible mark on me was the fact that there was no alcohol. Yes. The, the focus was not on, you know, no one stood and looked at the DJ. As a matter of fact, I don't think I even looked at Frankie or even noticed him, or, you know, until I met him. I, I would go and say hi after that. And then I would go and dance and wouldn't see him until the end of the night. I would say goodbye. You know, the DJ was, you know, where he was and was curating the, the environment and playing the music. And we were there for the music. And so, um, you know, that became the, 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 the blueprint, if you will, for how I wanted my parties to to, to go. And so um, um, my first, I gave one of the first parties at the loft, the loft on 13th in Michigan. Yeah. Um, it was a standalone building that a guy named Gino owned. And uh, I, I was brought in by a, a guy named Arthur Bailey and a guy named Tony Smith, who are legend, legendary promoters um, in the early house scene in Chicago, which was then just disco, or we called it clubbing. And when I moved to New York, that's what it was called. You were called a clubber and you went out clubbing. Yes. Um, so we, we didn't call it house um, because that term came, I think, later. Because I'm talking about 78, 79 now. Um, yeah. I gave my first party in 79. Um, and I used the, um, the recreation center in the, in, my grandmother lived at 72nd and South Shore Drive in this high rise building that sat on the lake. So the, 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 the whole downstairs was glass and the lake was out like just like here through the glass. So the rec room, we turn off all the lights. Um, we brought in a sound system and uh, maybe a strobe or a red light. And my cousin, Dwayne Robinson, who was a DJ, um, he went to um, he was a little older than me. He went to Leo, uh, but he had he had, he had gone to the warehouse and, and was a disco lover and just had turntables. And back then you had to buy the records. There was no way to get the music. You couldn't stream it. There was no CDs. 
It wasn't on cassette. You bought the records. And so he had the records. We would go to his house in his basement. He lived over on 109th and Parnell. We would go to his house in his basement and he would DJ and we would warm up and, and get, get you know, ready and then go to the warehouse or go up north. Um, so he's one of my older cousins that took me around and, and, and gave me access. But the point is, is that um, the warehouse was the blueprint. And so we, we, my grandmother lived in this building on 72nd and South Shore. So I rented it out. I went because I knew I, I was there all the time. So I knew the manager. I said, can I use that room for a party? And she was like, yeah, sure. It's $25. I go, okay. And I think I charged $3. And I made about $900 that night because the place was packed. We started at 10. And I think the police came about two because it just turned into like a, a mob scene. People all out on the street. It was just ridiculous. And I was like, whoa, you know, I didn't, I didn't know. I thought just a few of my friends would show up. And we wanted to just have a cool private event where we played the music we loved, uh, disco, and and kind of other new wave stuff or whatever, what have you, sprinkled in there. But um, yeah, that that showed me that there was the potential for for me to promote parties, and so my name started getting moved around the city. Because let me just start by saying I didn't know about what was going on on the South Side. Okay. I, I never I never went to Mendo. I never went to any of the South Side clubs or, okay. you know, I, I didn't know about I met those people later. Yeah, I, I met Wayne Williams later, who I hired as a DJ and the, the chosen few. I, I did parties where they were hired as DJs. Um, and the era that I started in the late 70s, it wasn't about the DJ. The promoter's name made the difference. So the DJ. Certainly. Um, Wayne had a sound system, him or Frenchie or Kirk Townsend had the sound system, but it was all about us and the way we designed the flyer and what we called the party and, 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 you know, what the, the, the vibe was. And so, um, that was the, the, the beginning of, of, of what became sort of what we know as the house music scene. But again, you know, it didn't exist before this, there was no, parties up north that catered to, you know, there was, it was separate. It was, it was segregation. And so I didn't know about the South side because I wouldn't go past, you know, 71st street. I lived on 73rd and, and Phillips. I wouldn't go past 74th street. As soon as it was time to go, I leave the house, I would head north. And so as far as nightlife goes, you know, I'd already started partying in 77 on the north side. So I didn't, I didn't, that was for me digressing if I would have tried to seek out what was happening on the South side. And I also knew that the South side wasn't as diverse as, as what I was accustomed to Certainly. no shade or no disrespect to what was happening on the South side yeah. as relevant as it was. And as significant as it was, it, I wasn't a part of that scene. So I, I, I appreciate the, the candor in that. And uh, again, the, the story that one night at your grandmother's uh, rec building recreation room uh, was sort of the catalyst of uh, certainly your promotional journey. And um, I wanted to ask, what were you um, solely using your name 
Lano Brazil or were you part Absolutely. of a click or okay? No, it was usually Lano Brazil. It even got to the point where other promoters would pay me to put my name on the flyer and and then I would just have to show up. You know, obviously I would I would promote, I would get some flyers or plugs, yes. we call them, and yep. I would take them to my people because they knew that when they saw my party and how diverse it was, they were like, there's going to be a lot of cute girls. It's going to be, I mean, I knew girls like the Stavro sisters that lived in Humboldt Park. I knew girls that lived in Wicker Park. I knew girls that went to Elizabeth Seaton, that went to Unity, that went to Aquinas, that went to um, um, Whitney Young wasn't there yet. No, yeah, Longwood. Yeah. Um, but but even the North Side schools, uh, Francis Matthew. Parker. So so yeah, and, and then I knew also older guys and girls, straight, gay, whatever, what have you, different nationalities that went to Columbia, the Art Institute, that you know worked up north. These people would come. I mean, Frankie Knuckles came to one of my parties. Ron Braswell and. Robert Williams came to one of my parties. I gave another party at a friend of mine named Charles Armstrong. He lived on a street called Gordon Terrace, which is way up north, just off Lakeshore Drive in a high rise. Another recreation room that was we blacked it out and put a red light in there, brought in the sound system. And, you know, it was all about creating a vibe. That was most important. The venue was painfully important to me because you wanted people to feel a sense of creative and 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 a sense of, of of liberation where you know that what you're wearing and 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 you know what you're feeling you can express it and the music is going to cater to that and that's what we encouraged and so you know when you walk into this room that you know we did things like blow up balloons and and hang things from the ceiling and you know, just little small things that, and like I said, how the flyer was designed. And I had a good friend I went to high school with at South Shore. His name was Issachar Ben Yaakov. He was a Hebrew Israelite, great yes. artist. And um, um, he, you know, we were, we, you know, we read books together and, and would spend hours listening to music and reading GQ magazine and then Luomo Vogue and the Face magazine and ID magazine and Paper magazine and, you know, Village Voice and just really absorbing all this information. And that was like our, our research was like furthering our studies, so to speak. It it made me who I am and it made my parties what they were. And so, you know, again, you know, when we started doing parties at Lofts, it was based on Dave Mancuso. And, and another thing I wanted to point out was the reason I also started doing parties in 79 was because the warehouse was a little bit um, discriminatory to women. So, you know, there was probably, like I said, 99.9% gay and then probably 99.999% men. So the few women that came in were very close friends with somebody who was, you know, you know, because it was a gay men's after hours private members club. Yeah. And so um, as a result, I wanted to to have a place where I would be women, you know, um, and I knew a lot of girls and I wanted the girls to experience this. And 
bring the fashion and we just live this glamorous thing that we saw in magazines and GQ and Luomo Vogue and Fiorucci ads. And it was just all about that. And I knew girls that were in that lifestyle and wanted to participate, but couldn't go to the warehouse. You know, a, a lot of people talk about the warehouse and, and, and use the ware warehouse as a, a, a jump off center for when they started partying. But, you know, in 1978 and 79, it wasn't a lot of girls there. It's just the truth, you know? So that's why I started giving parties because I didn't know about what was happening on the South side. I would knew that on the North side, I would go to smart bar exit, whatever, what have you. Girls are there, diversity, warehouse, not so much. And, and so what we've learned in, and thanks for that perspective, because what we've learned in talking to uh, a lot of people now is that um, one of the, the tipping points of what changed um, and, and how house became sort of adopted or, or the term, you know, warehouse originally and then shortened to house um, was that that transition began to occur where there was a bit of, uh, of a convergence uh, on the warehouse, you know, from those people that had been partying on the South side and uh, certainly dancing to R and B and, and punk and, and disco um, converged into uh, being able to gain access to the warehouse. And, and there was a point of marginal enough acceptance Right, that those that came and experienced the warehouse then went back into the uh, corners of the rest of the city and talked about this experience of, of, of house music. And, and I'm sure what you did in terms of creating a, uh, another you know, dimension of that experience all led to this adoption of this conglomeration of things that became... Yeah. No, let me say this though. Let me say this. Yeah. Like, but the difference is like, like you said, um, there, there were parties going on on the South side and in, in supper clubs and different places, but they weren't like what was happening at the warehouse. It was, it was totally different because one, I don't, I don't know, but I've heard stories. It was not dissimilar to what was happening at Mendel. It was not dissimilar to what was happening at, at, at Sawyer's and, and these places. They were all playing disco, but what Frankie brought and Robert Williams brought was a style of music and a, a, an atmosphere that was nothing else like it. And I have to say that it just was not. You know, people can claim that, you know, it, it was already going on in Chicago. It really wasn't. Um, I'd never seen anything like this. I'd been everywhere. And, and, and by virtue of the fact that, you know, uh, uh, the Mendel parties were held at an all boy Roman Catholic church, I mean, school yes. alone says what the dynamic was. So when you bring in this creative environment and this loft environment with, you know, a uh, 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 very little lighting, uh, an incredible sound system, you know, just this, there was so many different elements of what Dave Mancuso created and what was then developed through uh, Nicky Siano with the gallery and then Paradise Garage with Larry LeVan. Mm -hmm. The only thing that was like those three things was the warehouse and nothing else was like that. And even us giving parties at the loft um, tried to emulate that. We came close, but it still was very, very different. 
because, you know, aside from someone like I would say that I know of, Wayne Williams, who, you know, um, had gone to, uh, knew who Ron, I heard Ron Hardy at, 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 at Den One or Carol Speakeasy. I think it was Den One. Yes. Um, in, in 77 or something like that. Um, and so um, he played a different kind of music than he did at the music box. In the music box, things had evolved, things had moved forward. But what I'm trying to establish, and, and I want to make clear from my perspective, is that more than the creation of house music, what Robert Williams and, 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 and Frankie Knuckles did was bring this Dave Mancuso blueprint for how parties needed to be produced. And, 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 and the energy and, and, and how you uh, allow people in. You know, there was a, a certain amount of selectiveness in the kind of parties that I gave. You Absolutely. know, I, I, it was people that you'd come to the door. I'm just like, I'm sorry, unless you have an invitation and you were with it. We, I treated it like it was a private club, and, you know. And to, to this, this very point, I think I, I want to say we are we are absolutely in agreement of, of what you just outlined. Um, and, and the term that you used uh, to emulate, right, was I think at the core of what um, I was suggesting. That is that because of those experiences being heightened and elevated and exclusive and atmospheric, the desire to emulate and try to replicate those things uh, you know, around other points in the city, uh, I think, are the elements that gave way to, you know, this cultural phenomenon that I claim house to be, you know, it's certainly the music at the center, but the whole cultural piece was, it was emerged by this effort to emulate Right. And, 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 and most importantly, you have to also look at the fact that if few, if any people actually went to the warehouse, especially because I will say this, Tony Smith, Arthur Bailey, uh, um, um, there's another guy, um, um, I'm having a John a blank. He gave, a, he rented out the, the uh, warehouse um, early on. Craig, Craig Thompson was his name. Craig Thompson. Craig, Craig Thompson was a promoter that gave parties all over the city. I went to a party he gave at the Germania Club all, yes. across from from in old um, town. Yeah, yeah, in old town. town. Yeah. So, so, but the point is, is that few people tried early on. I'm talking about from my perspective, in 1979. I yeah. didn't know anybody that was playing disco music that was trying to emulate this loft concept. And this warehouse uh, um, aesthetic, it wasn't going on like that, you know, because most people had never experienced it, didn't understand what it was. And, and also one thing that you have to make uh, um, take notice to is the fact that your, 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 your clientele, the people that are there, shape this thing. Because if you got people who are young, immature, don't understand what's going on, maybe still not sure of their identity or who they are they might be a little more reserved. So those people are, yes. are not necessarily um, going to be forerunners or present the 
or expose the, 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 the aesthetic of what's going on in the place. But it's the people that are that play a role that are like characters in a play or, you know, in a, in a Broadway production, you know. It, and, and a lot of those parties at the warehouse were like going to see The Wiz or Cats or one of those okay. because it would be this kind of dancing and the kind of music. It wasn't all disco. It was rock. It was um, Latin. It was Brazilian. It was funk. It was gospel. It was, you know, new wave. It was just, it was, it was more like a soundscape that, and I have to say that did influence how, what we know as house going forward. But originally it was, it was really designed to, it was, it was like creating a drawing and a kaleidoscope of sound and energy and imagery through the music that inspired you to 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 express yourself in a creative way even if you were in your own mind you may not have been a great dancer but the way you felt it and that energy became this thing that everybody connected on and once that happened it raised the vibration in the room yeah. and that i have to say is a very unique dynamic that didn't exist everywhere else no question, no question about it. And, and particularly, we often talk about what that phenomenal sound system um, at U.S. Studios, um, you know, did to your body, right? Right. It, it not only, you know, um, seeped into your your psyche, um, but it, it physically moved you. And so I... My I told- ears are still ringing to this day between <laughs> Ron Hardy and the music box and Frankie at the warehouse. I, I have what you call technic. Te, te, um, there's a word for it. I can't think of it right now. Um, but my ears still ring. Persistent ringing. Yeah. 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 Because I would leave there and I would ring until like Thursday. And as soon as I kind of the ringing stopped, I'm back in a club and then boom. Yeah. So I'm, I, I'm grateful to have hearing right now. Well, fa- fascinating discussion. I, again, I'm uh, I'm listening a lot and there's a lot of things I want to unpack along the way, but one of the things I wanted to get back to uh, very quickly was that you um, you became a brand in terms of you know promotions and I, I love what you outlined about in these early days that the promoter was uh, sort of the catalyst and in, in the driver and the um, the focal point. The, 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 yeah, yeah. Without the the promoter, nothing, nothing would, nothing would move. DJs didn't, didn't make people come to the parties. It wasn't about the DJ. So uh, about who you are and your name, you you talked, you know, certainly about some of the physical characteristics uh, you shared with um, some of the other people that you partied with and, and were friends with, but you you do have uh, this. Um, powerful uh, name that certainly lends itself well to to building a unique brand. Talk about the origins of Lionel Brazil, the name. Okay, um, thank you for that. Um, so I'm a junior, um, named after my father, Lionel Brazil Sr. Uh, my son is Lionel Brazil the third, and my grandson is the fourth. Um, the ironic thing is that. Um, my biological grandfather, his name is Charles Savant. Um, he was a Creole man from a place called, um, um, he's from Louisiana, from Algiers, Louisiana. 
Mm. Um, my on my mother's side, they're from Lake Charles, Louisiana, and I lived in a place called Jenny's in Southwest Louisiana. So the, the basis of my family is coming from Louisiana. But my grandmother um, was married to a man named Mason Brazil, and uh, he passed away, but she kept his name, but she became pregnant by my grandfather, Charles Salvant. But because she was still a Brazil, my father's name became Lano Brazil. Yes. Yes. So okay. that's the, 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 the cut and dry of why my name is Lano Brazil. So I'm named after my dad. However, um, the branding part was my uh, doing, <laughs> my persistence and my, um, um, I, I, it's another funny story too. I have to tell this. I, I don't get to tell it much because people sure. think it's absurd, but I think now would be a good time to tell it. When I was in seventh grade, I went to Myra Bradwell school on 77th and Burnham in South Shore, yeah. uh, which was a pretty rough and rugged school uh, uh, at the time. Um, and most of the kids that, that did go to school, um, ended up going to either CVS or, or you were encouraged to go to CVS. South shore was the obvious choice, yes. but in seventh grade, you would get a, a guidance counselor that would sit and talk to you about your grades and what you wanted to do for your eighth grade. So you could take a couple of courses and then where you were going to go to high school. And so I'd never met this woman and, and most people that, that came before me talked about, you know, they went to see the guidance counselor and I'm going to go to CVS and I'm going to go to Lane Tech or I'm going to go to Bloom Tech or I'm going to go to this school, Bowen or whatever it was or South Shore because I want to study this and starting to get you prepared for the future. Um, and, um, you know, because CVS had an automotive department, they had a shop department, you know, we lived in an industrial society. And so you were encouraged to to, to, to be a laborer and get a job that way because they didn't encourage us and didn't think we were studious enough to think about college. So you get what you need in high school and go right to work. That was sort of the, the, the theses and the, and the foundation for what I was interpreting was, 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 was going on at the time. So when it came my turn, I went to sit with this woman and she, the first thing she said to me was like, she was like, Lono Brazil. She was like, you have a movie star name. You should be a movie star. And I looked at her, I was like, is that your advice to me, ma'am? Like, what kind of, how do you tell a seventh grader he should be a movie star? Like, what the, and it just blew my mind. However, it did change the course of where I was going because from that point on, believe it or not, quietly within myself, I mean, I, I, I did little plays in school and, and wanted to, to, to pursue acting so to speak, was always interested in, in this kind of thing. I even studied theater at Columbia College um, for a couple of years before I moved away. Um, but, and then I became a model, um, kind of got diverted from acting to becoming a model or wanting to become a model. Um, in the 80s, it was a different time. Um, the opportunity for men of color, especially if you didn't look authentically black or African-American, there was no market for you. If you weren't Hispanic or Asian, they didn't know what to do with you. So I didn't really do much in, in the ways of, of modeling, except the few little things I was able to pull together on my own through hustling. Um, but then 35 years later, I got signed to one of the top agencies in the world. And now I'm an international model. I don't know if you knew that. I, I, I did my homework and absolutely, uh, 
learned about your modeling career and uh, the journey of getting there. I was going to ask about that uh, along this um, incredible life that um, you've been sharing with us. You touched upon the fact that you spent some time at both the Art Institute uh, as an ex-officio student, if you will, uh, some time right. at Columbia, sounds like, as a, as a student. But then you um, decided something inspired you to go uh, and leave Chicago. And I think from Chicago, you went to New York. Is that correct? That's right. So what, what happened was, um, you know, from once I met Frankie and, and Robert and, and, and those, that crew at U.S. Studios, and, and found out that this came from something, what they were doing. It was so incredibly unique that I wanted to know the origin of it. So my inquisitiveness, I asked questions. I got to know Robert a little bit and I got to know Frankie a little bit. And we talked when we, when we had opportunities. Um, and I found out that there was a place called the gallery and a on and off kind of movable venue that originated this concept called the loft. So, me being the adventurous one that I am, I was like, well, I'm going to New York to check this out and also Paradise Garage. And so in 1982, I ventured to New York and uh, went to Paradise Garage. I also went to uh, Danceteria and the Mud Club and, you know, CBGBs. I went because I was still, you know, very into New Wave and punk and all the other stuff. So I knew about all these places through my research. And so, um, but most importantly, I ended up at Paradise Garage. Um, and that blew my mind. That, I, I, my mind was blown in, in 79 or 78 at the warehouse, US Studios. But once I got to Paradise Garage, it was, it, I was just transformed into another space and time, another out of body experience. Um, it, 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 it impacted me so much that I knew that I had to live in New York because I needed to experience this on a regular basis and also New York in general, because the same way I was enamored and, and so blown away by what was happening on the north side. I walked right into the downtown art scene, into the, the downtown club scene in the early 80s, which was I think the blueprint and the epicenter for all things that are happening now in the world, everything that we're doing came out of New York in the eighties. A lot of people don't want to admit that. or don't want to acknowledge that, but personally experiencing that and seeing that and then going to other parts of the world and seeing how incredibly authentic New York was in creating this environment. Um, so much so that, like I said, you know, Amsterdam is now the epicenter of house music um, but it reminds me of New York in the 80s. Um, you know, New York was a very dangerous place. It was a dirty place. You know, they had blackouts and the city was going bankrupt and trash was in the street and crime was rampant. And it was just drugs were everywhere. Prostitution. It was just it was danger every night, even in the day. But going out at night and going to some of these after hour clubs was a, a risky proposition. But you wanted that energy so bad that you ventured into the night and you, you know, see what happens. And if you were lucky and you came out unscathed, you lived for the next time you could do it again. So experiencing that in 82, I came back to Chicago. I was, I was still going, I think I was going to, I was going to Columbia then and still hanging out with my friends at Art Institute and giving sporadic small little parties here and there. But I want to say, 
by 82, the warehouse closed. I, I, I'm not sure yeah, the date. You have to, that, that's about was it 82? Right. Yeah, maybe, yeah, 82. And so then Frankie was sort of misplaced. But let me say this too. Also, not only checking out Paradise Garage, but also hearing Larry LeVan, it didn't make me underappreciate Frankie Knuckles as what, his, what he did and his significance. But if you hear Larry, they are so similar. And so, but Larry was so much more um, uh, elaborate and so much more uh, animated and so much more, he had a bigger system. It was a bigger venue. It was yeah. more people. It was probably the people who actually danced in Cats and Wiz were there. Um, amongst Grace Jones and Deborah Harry and Iman and Andy Warhol and Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat and, you know, Cher and, you know, Calvin Klein. And then every drag queen and Vulgar, Miss J, you know, Portia Pendavis and uh, um, the House of, they were all there. So this was I mean, it was a circus. It was just, it was the most mind-blowing, incredibly intoxicating, just there was nothing ever else like that. So again, it, it doesn't make you underappreciate Frankie Knuckles and his contribution to what he did to us and for us in Chicago and Sorry. helping us understand that this, this, this was something. But New York was, was where it started. And when you go to that source, and I got a chance to go to some of Dave Mancuso's events, yes. which were just like mind blowing in the way he did things because he was an audiophile. And, you know, sometimes the DJ booth would be so close to the dance floor and the music was so, so pure that you could have a conversation like we're having at this tone, at this level and still hear the music and people still dance. It was that was mind blowing. So um, all of that. I say also contributed to my development and how I viewed the world and how I view things and who I became that all is directly associated with, with me in 82 going to New York. And I want to also say that, you know, um, um, understanding, you know, cause again, there was, there was dance interior. There was, you know, I saw Madonna hanging out there and thought, damn, like, that's Madonna, but she was just normal. New York is very, was very like that, where what we would call a celebrity in Chicago and being of, those people are just there like you. And if you were able to gain access into these places, you felt like you were part of this private or this exclusive or this selective uh, 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 society or secret society, which it really was because there were New Yorkers that didn't know this went on. Um, and people now that, that, that party and give parties and all over the world, Berlin, wherever it might be, it's all based on that. And, and speaking of some of these um, people, and that was an incredible roll call, by the way, which um, you know, we certainly heard and read about um, the who's who of uh, some of those venues from uh, the list that you shared, but I'm curious about Keith Herring in particular. How, how did you come to meet Keith and what was um, that? 
relationship. Yeah, like. Keith. Actually, I helped Keith hang his last show before he passed at Tony Shafrazi's in Soho. We we became close friends, and I ended up, you know, watching him paint all the pieces. This was a one man show that was one of his bigger shows. Tony Shafrazi uh, gallery was on Wooster Street, just off of House in in, in Soho, when oh. Soho was really just art galleries and lost and a dangerous place to go at night. Um, and Keith had a studio on on Broadway um, off of um, Bleecker Street. Um, um, and yeah, I'm, I used to work at a club called Nell's. So oh, yeah. to backtrack a little bit, um, uh, I was going, when I finally moved to New York, I think in 86, I started working, in 86 or 87, I started working at Nell's. And I was hired back then, you know, to get a job there was harder than, you know, getting a modeling job. Because first of all, everybody was a model or an actor. You know, all the bartenders were were gorgeous black men. All the uh, waitresses wore Norma Kamali, and they were all blonde haired, blue eyed Eastern European girls or or, or Asian girls. And um, the 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 uh, door guys weren't well. There was the doorman and a door woman, but there was also um, security. And we all wore MA1s and Doc Martens and black jeans. And we all were six foot tall. And, you know, most were either models or actors and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, I was probably, Nell kept me at the door most of the time. So it appeared that I was the doorman because I was wanting to open the gate. But the decision came from the, the door person. Okay. I was there to just assist and keep the door under control. And if I saw members show a, a, a tag, I would just let them in. Members were allowed to just come in with their guests and pay. Everybody paid five dollars. So I don't know if you know a girl named Karen McCormick. Good friends with Aisha. Karen's a hairdresser, Chicagoan. Um, Karen and I were very close. And I was in New York going to all these new wave clubs and all these, you know, going to the Paradise Garage and things like that. And Karen one day was like, Lano, you got to go to Nell's. I was like, what's Nell's? She was like, that's where Andy Warhol and all of them hang out at. Like, that's the spot. You need to go there. You're going to love it. I went. She had come to New York and, and, and went there and knew about it. And I think Phaedra Price, who's also a hairstylist, also friends, uh, Aisha, all of us kind of hung in Chicago, Tim Johnson. I knew a lot of hairstylists and, you know, that they were all part of this little inner circle that we were all in. And um, so I went to, 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 to go check out Nell's. And um, I went on an off night just randomly and I, I was I started talking to the doorman and I, he got me in because if you weren't a member, you got chose to get in. They did. Um, they You get picked to get in. It was sort of like the aftermath of Studio 54 it was smaller, okay. different yes. format, but it was the same crowd. They had a new place to go to. That was Nell's. And I don't know if you know, Nell Campbell played little Nell in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yes. She was a Broadway actress, Australian Broadway actress and downtown debutante, knew everybody. So this was her club, along with some English backers that she had. Yeah. Anyway, so I went on a I was going back on a Saturday night um, uh, the, the, or Thursday night, I think it was. And my 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 oldest son, who's 35 years old, um, his mother is Japanese. So my ex-wife is a Japanese woman. Her name is Akiko who also happens to be the mama-san of house music in Japan and Southeast Asia. Nice. She manages DJs, she's, she works with promoters and she 
She's the go-to person. She brought Lolita Holloway every time Lolita came. She brought Larry LeVan. She brought Danny Crivet. All the, the the names from New York, and and she was part of a club called Goals in New York. Another story. So I, you know, and she was a Paradise Garage member and that was her scene she wasn't into the other new wave stuff she was strictly garage strictly you know david depino tracks on tuesday tony humphreys at, at at zanzibar new jersey on friday that was her thing which a lot of japanese kids were into in new york at this time so i was like i want to make sure i get in nails on this thursday night which is the busiest night prince was there diana ross grace jones you name it this was the spot um, and the music was real diverse, but, um, so I asked her to come with me. I was like, I, I said, let's meet there on a date. I was like, let's meet at Nell's and I know I could get in. I wore all my Comedy Garcon. She had on Jean-Paul Gaultier and we knew we were going to get in. I'm a tall, you know, model-ish wannabe man of color. And I got a tall, skinny Japanese girl in Gaultier. We're in like Flynn, you know. And so I wait out on the curb and the crowd is all on the street. Limousines are pulling up. Who's who is going in? It's just, it's, it's hectic. It's a scene. And I'm waiting. An hour goes by. I go to the payphone, call her house, leave a message, check my messages on the payphone. That's how you had to communicate back then. No, no message from her. She never showed up. Then about 12, about 1130, quarter to 12, one of the security guys come off the, the door and come over to the curb and say, hey, the, the doorman wants to speak to you. And I'm like, about what? Like, I'm thinking, am I staying out here too long? Like, what is he getting ready to tell me? I walk up and he says, hey, you know, we're really busy tonight and we're shorthanded. Would you like to work here? And I'm like, <laughs> that's a job offer for you. <laughs> Bruh, and I got hired that night. I didn't ask how much you paid. I didn't ask how many days I worked. I was like, when do I start? He was like, right now, I'll explain everything as we go along. I just need you at the door here with me. And we'll, and this guy was named Michael Smith, a British guy, notoriously incredible dope doorman in New York downtown scene. He knew everybody from London, from Boy George to, you know, Bow Wow Wow and Skinny Puppy. And this one, he was in that scene, the punk scene, the Vivian right. Westwood scene. That was his thing. He introduced me to those people. Later on, I ended up in London. Um, but the long and short of it is I got hired and that changed my life. Um, I met Keith Haring. I met Jean-Michel. I met Iman. I met Katusha. I met you name it. I can't even name all the names. And I became sort of like a, a downtown notable, so to speak, because Nels was... The, the, the place to be. So, right. you know, everybody knew that's that guy from Nels. And so, you know, this story could go further away from house music. I don't want to take it there. So I'm going to sort of ease it right there and sort of dial it back a little bit because I don't want to, I don't want to get too ahead of myself or ahead of you, you know, please uh, stop me and, and, and pick up wherever you want to. I mean, well, you uh, answered the question in an emphatic manner is certainly a fascinating story. And, and I will have a whole new perspective about nails now based on, on what you shared today. But um, again, this is about understanding sort of your journey and, and your narrative and uh, beyond New York, I, I wanted to get to next 
um, what took you uh, over the pond, if you will, and, and out to Europe as your, um, your life and adventure continued? Well, it, it, again, it was Michael Smith, the guy who was the head doorman at Nell's. Um, he was like, you know, this is happening. That's happening. This per- I was meeting people coming in and out from Europe. Um, and one night I met, um, I was standing outside and Jean-Paul Gaultier walked up. And I'm like, whoa. And at the time, he's like the Balenciaga of the world. Like, yes. or the, you know, like Gucci didn't rate. No other brands rate. It was Jean-Paul Gaultier. Um, and so he walked up and I'm like, whoa, Jean-Paul. And I just bring him right in. And I'm like, Michael, I'm going to take Jean-Paul and hang out with him and introduce him. Because in, he came by himself, just walked up. The crowd was everywhere. Nobody really knew who he was. I knew who he was. Michael knew who he was. So we go in and I hang out. I'm talking to Jean-Michel and there's some other, you know, downtown notables, fashion people there. We go get a table and sit and chat. And I ask him, like, yo, are you doing a show in in Paris uh, in January? He was like, oh, yes, you should walk in my show. You should come to Paris. I'm like, I'll be there. (laughs) And so, um, you know, things go a little bit forward and um Iman what Iman the great Iman was a regular at Nell's at the time too good friends with Keith Haring um good friend with Nell and she would come quite often and she, one night she brought a, a supermodel African woman named Katusha and I knew who Katusha was and I introduced myself sorry the door went inside hung out with her we became friends and she's like oh you got to come to Paris you know come and see me you know, here's my number, you know, we'll hang out. I'll show you everything. Cause while she was there, we went around and, and hung out a bit. Um, and so now I know two people in Paris. And so um, the long and short of it is I went in January, just booked the ticket, went, um, it, I got to Gautier and it was such a circus, you know, trying to get in his atelier and trying to meet him and trying to, it was like going to a club because it was such a craze. I can Every, you know, cause he, he, he didn't make, he didn't hire just models. He hired celebrities and, and different people of different sorts. And so going to his office was like going to a nightclub because people were trying to get to him. He was a rock star. And so I wasn't able to get hold to him until three days before the show. And I ended up getting upstairs to his atelier and we talked, he remembered me. We had a chat, we ate and had some drinks. I saw him at Le Bandouche the night or two uh, after or that night, but I didn't get a chance to walk in his show. But um, I did in fact um, see Katusha and she saw me in the club and, you know, invited me to come and stay at her place. Cause I was staying at a hotel Yes. And I ended up staying with Katusha and staying in Paris for two months or something like that. And then started going to London and just kind of was just wandering around around Europe, went to Belgium, to Antwerp and um, Brussels, um, um, you know, London, back to Paris, Manchester. I was just moving around. And also, believe it or not, um, at this point, you're tuned in to the Vintage House Show, home to the original stories of the history of house music as told by the legends, pioneers, and icons. Hosted by Kevin Mega McFall, Lori Branch, and Lauren Lowry. But yeah, what I was going to say was that the irony of, of, of all of this to, to get back, I think, to, to 
what what your show is about was that all during this time in New York with all the clubs, believe it or not, no one that I, at the clubs I went to, and I went to almost all clubs, no one was playing dance music from Chicago. Yeah. I didn't really understand that there was actual, I mean, I mean, I have to, you know, obviously everybody knew that It's House by, by Chippy, in my opinion, was the first record that I heard that I thought was the Chicago sound that was raw and used the word house. But ironically, I first heard that record played by Joe Smooth at the Smart Bar. And he probably played New Order before that and probably, I don't know, mm -hmm. uh, Tulio de Piscopo after or whatever. It wasn't, there was no other house record. So it wasn't a house night. He wasn't a house DJ. He just played this record. Um, and I thought it was a new wave record. I didn't know what the fuck it was. It blew my mind. <laughs> I loved it. Um, yeah. But, um, and then I don't know what year Marshall Jefferson made um, the house music anthem. Gotta have house music all night long. I don't know when that record was, was first came out. Um, But I guess that was sort of like the flag in the ground that now we have a term for this music. And one thing that I can I can go back to, and this is my point about New York and, and London and all that, was that um, th no one was playing those records in, in New York. So there wasn't a term circulating called house. And even Frankie, as I recall, in the power plant day, he obviously wasn't playing at the warehouse because it, it wasn't, the music hadn't got, it hadn't been created yet. The, 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 so there was a lot of things that happened and this timeline is, is very important because it's often disputed, right? In, in terms right. of what was what, but um, rather than going down that uh, rabbit hole, I, I want to ensure that we also get to understand um, when you got, you know, to Europe, like you said, someone, no one necessarily told you that the music that was being played at some of these venues was Chicago house music. But at some point you came. No, to they it. did. Well, no, that okay. was the point. See, so someone what happened was because I didn't hear it in New York and no one was using that term. I didn't really consider it to be relevant or to be a thing. I get to Europe, especially England, and we're talking like 88. Okay. Um, yeah. Now I went to Manchester to a club called uh, the Hacienda. They're playing nothing but Chicago house music, calling it house. The night was house. And I think, I think a house DJ from Chicago, a DJ from Chicago might have been there. I can't think of who it is right now. But eventually, I wasn't there that night, but the night I went, it was all British, 99% white kids going crazy, not dancing like us, but all the music was Chicago music. All of it was house music. The same, I go to, back to London, there's clubs, they're playing, I mean, they're going crazy for it. By 89, I want to say the British were making house music and calling it that. Okay, yeah, that that's about right because it was, it was around 1986 that um, Curtis McLean and Marshall Jefferson hit with Move, Move Your Body, 
And, um, and that became, you know, an international. Uh, but what about got to have house, the house anthem? When did that come? That came out first or move your that, body came out first. No, no, that, that is, that is the official title, right. Of oh. the, the house music anthem, uh, move your body by okay. Jefferson and Curtis McLean. And, and so that was 86. Um, before that, of course, uh, there were um, Chippy and Jesse Saunders with, um, you know, songs that were uh, originated within the Chicago, you know, cultural phenomenon that we now know to be house music. But, you know, the use of the 808 drum machines and 909s and, and the four on the floor uh, and very raw beat. Uh, emerged as this thing that had a very Chicago flavor uh, to it. And, and so what we've heard and, you know, some of the narratives was that uh, there were people who came either to Chicago or, or New York and they heard these songs and they got copies and they brought them back overseas. And then, uh, began to invite some of the artists and DJs and remixers uh, to the UK and, and beyond. Uh, and that is how house music spread. Very, very high level, 50,000 foot view. Um, but, but let me say this, because by 89, I've all, I'm also now going to Tokyo. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm hearing, I'm hearing dance music because this this is something i think that we need to also acknowledge or or put in perspective when disco died and 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 frankie came ironically the same year him and robert opened the warehouse the same year disco died 1978 yes. so i 78 and 82 when the warehouse closed that music he was playing even though disco was everywhere it went it went underground new york never stopped making dance music right that's, Larry Levan was was still active all the way till 89 in Paradise Garage. And he still he didn't start playing. I didn't hear. I, he used to play Larry Heard and he used to play Master C and J. But I never heard him play Move Your Body. Not not once have I heard Move Your Body in Paradise Garage. I right. never heard any of that, any of the other kind of stuff. It was very uh, uh, indigenous to Chicago, except for London. Now, the same thing in 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 Asia and Japan. I didn't hear Chicago House, maybe a few records by, by 89, maybe a few records, but definitely Master CNJ, definitely Larry Hurd, who I think is a genius. And I think the finger stuff and what he did, Chicago definitely didn't support him as he should. I mean, I think his, the, he created Deep House, in my opinion, but, you know, just Chicago didn't claim Deep House. As, as something that they wanted to embrace and carry through. And I think as a result, Chicago doesn't own house music anymore because Chicago didn't embrace and, and try to solidify and or quantify or monetize house music as a, as a genre and as a business and as a, a, a thing that we could collectively work together and move forward with. However, everywhere else I went, that was taking place. So it was very um, 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 ironic to me and, and a little bit disturbing because being from Chicago 
and going to these places and seeing people trying to represent it as something that was theirs, that they almost are champion and or pioneering. I'm like, well, wait a minute. No, but I know where this comes from. Certainly. So you can't really say that. So I had, you know, disputes and, and, and different uh, contingent dialogue with, with promoters, DJs, producers, because I knew a lot of, of the so-called right people in the these places. Yeah. Yeah, and and I I'm I'm talking about people in Europe. I didn't know a lot of the guys in Chicago because oh, again, okay. I left so early. I yes. just knew of some of the music. Most of the guys that I knew, I met them overseas. I either met them in France, in Japan, or in yes. England. I didn't meet them in Chicago until I circled back around. Like to this day, I've never met Marshall Jefferson. I've never yes. met Chippy. Um, I've never met um um Larry Hurd. I know Robert Owens. I yes. never met Larry Hurd. Um Many Robert and I have crossed paths over the years because, you know, he's in Europe. Yes. Um, but, um, you know, like, like the music that I make now, I have my own label and I, I make records under the name Drum Pattern. I don't use my own name because there's a little bit of like confusion when you want to know who Lano Brazil is. The modeling comes has sort of superseded everything because I've been so successful with that. I decided I didn't want that to infringe upon and or sort of dilute or pollute. I wanted people to accept the music as it is. So drum pattern. Managing um, your brand. Yeah. 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 Keep yeah, keeping it separate and keeping it kind of but but my sound and what I'm influenced most by is the Detroit sound, which is I think influenced directly from Larry Hurd and Fingers. Um the deep Detroit, you know, the the, the Lano Smiths, the 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 um, Norm Tallies, the the Moody Mans and the you know, the Kenny Carpenter, not Kenny Carpenter, uh, um, 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 those guys, um, Omar, Omar S, those guys. Yeah. Yes. You know, Theo Parrish and, and Rick Wiltite. Um, all those guys do deep house music and they travel all over the world. They're very prominent, very well sought after their records sell. My records get pressed in Detroit at Archer and distributed by upstairs out of um, Detroit, because nobody in Chicago wants to collaborate with me, ironically. Um, and I think that's the reason why house music is sort of everywhere else and not um, uh, an indigenous. It's almost like reggae ain't reggae if it ain't from Jamaica. Anybody can make reggae and got the reggae sound, but real reggae has got to come from a Jamaican from Jamaica. To me, real house should come from Chicago, you know? <laughs> That, I, you know what I mean? From that standpoint. I, I, I agree a hundred percent. And, and, you know, this is part of the phenomenon that's often debated on, on the show and in, in various forums that are, are held uh, here and around uh, Chicago. But um, it is, it's one of those phenomenons and we can look back on some of the environmental uh, factors that have also contributed to that. And we see these things replicate in other genres like uh, blues and, and jazz yeah. as well. Absolutely. Uh, I follow you on that. Yes, that makes, that makes perfect sense. It's, just, it's, it's the same narrative and the same uh, uh, tra trajectory almost. It, it, it has been. And, and even yes. with speaking, you know, of the, um, pioneers of Detroit, the, the Kevin Saundersons and, and Juan Atkins and, and Derek Mays and Blake and all of those um, greats as well. I think um, they've, 
you know, maybe made some inroads to try to, you know, solidify their uh, origin stories, but, um, you know, techno as well, I, I think has suffered um, from that a bit. It, it's interesting though, that you shared your label and the, the production of your, um, your uh, the music when it was in the mechanical form, right? Um, had to go through Detroit, but I we've skipped totally over the fact that you too have DJed and curated sounds um, as a uh, you know one of these cultural provocateurs as, as well. And so um, we heard early that uh, I believe it was your older cousin that um, had the equipment and allowed you to maybe learn on, uh, his equipment and, and use some of his records to begin that DJ process, but talk a little That's bit. That's not more. true. Well, well, well no, I, I didn't DJ, you know, I hired Wayne Williams. I hired um, Ben Perez, you know, um, um, I don't know, Alan King kind of came with, when Chosen Fruit came together, but I could say Alan King has DJ one of the parties I was, I was the promoter with. Um, but those guys, you know, um, um, all came through that process. I was more of the host. I was more of the Robert Williams, if you will. Um, that's what I, that, that was what my claim to fame. And I've, when you were here, right. But s subsequent to that in, in your, um, European life, right. You've been, um, more well, yeah. Well, what happened was, um, um, so I didn't attempt to DJ. I was, I was involved with production. I made okay. some early, early stuff in the eighties with a guy named Jimmy Polo, who was in a group called Libra Libra. Yes. And they were on Mitch Ball records. They did a record with a girl named Jeanette Thomas called shake your body. Yeah. I, that was I had Jimmy Jeanette Polo. on the show talking about, okay. and then Vince Lawrence, um, that's you know. right. His father is Mitch Lawrence, and he owned Mitch Ball Records. And that Jimmy Polo, the guy who had the equipment, was my buddy. His partner's name was um, Tony Bowie. Tony Bowie um, was like the singer or like the the the, the front guy. And, but Jimmy came from the church. He had the he had a seven twenty seven or a seven oh seven Roland drum machine and yes. a Roland JXAP keyboard, and he showed me how to use it. And he okay. left it at my house a couple of times. Because he, his, he was more of a church. His family was more religious, so he couldn't do anything at the house. I was like, come by my house. My mother is at the, at the she, my uncle owns a tavern on Cottage Grove. She's probably there until four in the morning. We can jam. So <laughs> we were making house tracks. And I eventually bought some equipment. And probably 92, I think, is when I bought my first sampler, which I still have, an MPC. And then I, I use this one now. This is the the 1000 that I carry all over the world with me, oh, wow. uh, which, yeah. which allows me to, I made my last two records with this machine. Um, I still do analog. I, I got a couple of cents. And, but anyway, Jimmy taught me how to produce. And okay. so by 92, I did some stuff, but never released it. I'm going to eventually, since now I brought the machine back out, I got all these floppy discs with all these tracks. They're a little raw and kind of, you know, leave a lot to be desired, but I'm going to still put it out as a time capsule. But nice. as far as the DJing, um, because I was traveling around the world and going places and became a little bit kind of offended by how people were sort of staking claim to this Chicago sound, style, aesthetic, 
I considered myself to be from the origin and, 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 and you know, uh, uh, one of the, the early provocateurs, if you will, um, of, of, of what we now know this to be. And I thought I could authenticate it better in every yes. environment I was in. And so I would just play records. I would go to the record shop. If I knew the DJ who was in, I was cool with it. He had some of his, I'd go through his records, pick out me a stack, and then I'd play. I did that in Tokyo. I did that in Paris. I did that in London. And I did it in New York. Um, and that was sort of, and I did it in LA too. Um, but I went to LA on a trip back from, from Tokyo just to stop and, and hang out and met some guys that um, one of the guys was, um, I knew him because he did things in, because I, I was doing parties in New York too. I was doing parties in Tokyo. I was yes. doing parties in London. I was, I, I was doing parties um, 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 no more in Chicago because I was away then. But I was coming back and I, I, I knew a guy named Matt Robinson who is the brother of Holly Robinson from 21 Jump Street mm -hmm. and the son of Dolores Robinson from she managed all the black actors in Hollywood since the 80s and his father played um on Sesame Street his name was um uh, Matt Robinson as well he was he's one of the producers and he was on Sesame Street um so Matt being a friend of mine and close to the entertainment industry and was doing parties in in LA he invited me in his circle so now I'm running around Hollywood with all the Hollywood you know he he went to school with Emilio Estevez and this one and that one grew up in Malibu. So I fall into that scene, fall into the underground sort of select, you know, nightlife scene, the exclusive scene, if you will, um, in, in Hollywood. Um, and Matt was a DJ. Then all of a sudden, Matt took over as vice president of A&R at Capitol Records, Capitol EMI Records. And he was like, you should work here. And I got job. hired as a, as a record executive and I started working at a major label and I lived in L.A. for 10 years. So <laughs> that's another story. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But so DJing came on the heels of that. I would just okay. do parties and I always wanted to curate. I would go to these parties and I'd be like, oh, man, I know what this party needs. I'm going I'm to put some Chicago in it. And so I would play, you know, Larry Heard. I would play the Master C and J and the deep stuff. And, you know, I'd play some of the trackier stuff like, like Chippy. I like Chippy's. Like I said, I, I heard It's House and that blew my mind. It was something about the way Chippy produced that to me, and also hearing Ron Hardy play it, to me kind of defined what house music started out as. Yeah, and then what Larry heard and 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 Jesse from Master C and J took it further by putting these chord progressions and these deeper bass lines and these sweeping synths and that really became something that I I, be, I became really enamored with. So that's the reason why I DJed. It would either be my party or a friend's party, and I would just take over the turntables and create a vibe, playing some old "Love Is the Message" and stuff that people in LA had never heard. And even playing in London or Tokyo or even in, in, in Paris, no one had heard how we played music. I'm talking also pre-house, the way we played sort of, you know, Tulio de Pistigo, uh, you know, dun, yeah, dun, 
the Euro, yeah, that, the yeah. Euro disco Italo stuff, you know, Italo, no yeah. one heard it like that. And I was taking it directly from my influence, from Frankie, from Ronnie, from Larry LeVan and injecting my own sort of personality. But I had tapes and had the records. And so DJing is not really ever something I've ever said that I am as much as I've done it. Um, nice. I've done radio in Los Angeles, um, yeah. started doing a lot of industry events in the early 90s, um, mid, mid 90s to late 90s, early 2000s, um, and um, continued to produce. Um, I did a lot of disco edits where I found some of the older records that, that Frankie would play or Ronnie would play or Larry would play, and I re-edited them and pressed them up on vinyl or somebody pressed them up on vinyl. I'm not going to say I did, but <laughs> someone did. Let's put it like that. Um, yeah. Under the name Disco Unusual. So, you know, those are easy to find if they're still available, if you can still find them. I went to a record store in Amsterdam and they knew who I was from, from Disco Unusual and actually had my record, had one or two copies and they're selling for a lot of money now if you can, if you can get them. Um, but yeah, you know, that for me was me trying to sort of reestablish the identity of where house music's influence came from. Because let me say this too, real quick, and I'll let you get back, get back in control. Um, I feel like I'm flying all over the place. I want you to, I want to follow you. I, you know, I don't want you to let me fly off the handle. Um, but, you know, this term house music from a Chicago perspective and the term househeads. I never really was a fan of because it was attributed to what Frankie and Ronnie did and other DJs in the city in the in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, which what it was just disco music. You know, it was a tallow. It was all this different. It was a kaleidoscope of different types of music from New Order to, you know, Dominatrix Sleeps Tonight and, and, and all this other stuff. That Alexander wasn't Robotnik. Yeah, Alexander Robotnik. Yeah, that wasn't house music. It, house music is Chippy, is Marshall Jefferson, is Larry Hurd, is Master C and J, is Steve Silk Hurley. Probably that's all house music, in my opinion. I don't, you know, that's where I think the confusion lies in why Chicago, because even you know what I find ironic too. I, I, I'm rambling. It feels like we're just two old friends just having a having a chat. I'm enjoying this with you. I, I appreciate you I'm very much. It as well. So I'm just I'm listening and absorbing. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. But so, you know, it's ironic to me that even now, like the the, the, the bigger or the the, the the organizations that are kind of controlling the narrative of what's happening in Chicago are these non South Side, non West Side, non people of color businessmen and or venues and promoters or whatever that are controlling it now because we don't necessarily have a, a, a grip on the definition and the, 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 the a grip on the ownership. I have a grip on it. No matter where I'm in the world, it's obvious that I'm from Chicago. I do what I do and I do it well, in my opinion. And most people, a lot of people like what I do. The point is, is that I established when I when I was doing disco edits, I called them disco edits, even though it was the same records that we just talked about. That I didn't call it house music. And I came to Chicago. I was there for about four years. I lived on Gold Coast. Um, yes. This was probably two thousand 
2008 or 2009 till about 2013. And I was playing at a club called Danny's Tavern in Wicker Park in Bucktown. Mm-hmm. And I did a night called Disco Unusual Social Club. The, line, the party started at 10. It would go until 2, sometimes 3. The line would be down the street. Only person that came to see me was Ron Trent and Derek Carter. Aside okay. from that, nobody else came. The line was mostly white kids from the north side or from, you know, the south sub- I mean, north suburbs. And they went crazy because they had never heard this music. And all I was playing was the early stuff that we just talked about. I had all those records. I played them. The place, it was a vinyl-only club. They were all record heads, all these young white hipster guys, cool cats that worked in the record stores on the north side and kind of played on the north side. Had never heard these records before. Didn't know these records. Everybody on the south side knowing like the back of their hand. It wasn't a big deal. So maybe that's why nobody came. But Ron Trent came. I ended up playing at the Smart Bar with Michael Serafini. At, at, it wasn't called Queen then. But I ended up playing with the Gramophone guys one night. Um, we did a disco. They did a disco night. But, you know, I never got the support from the so-called house scene. For whatever reason, I don't know. Um, you know, later on, after I left and moved back to New York, they started, in, you know, more guys started coming around, Cordell Johnson and Twilight Tone and different other guys came in and started playing a little more housier stuff. But, you know, um, Chicago for me, I think, has been its own worst enemy. And, and you know, segregation is its, is its kryptonite, as Wayne Williams once said to me. I think it really challenges uh, us to be able to really grasp, hold, and unify and collectify <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll who take we that. are. Yeah, what what we do, you know, and 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 then have a. Everybody's so caught up in who's the best and who's the first and who's this and who's that. It's about we. It's, it's not about I. It's not about me. I I did what I did. I was one of the early. Um, contributors to what later became known as clubbing in Chicago, which gave birth to what the younger generation after me created and and made house. I didn't, I I didn't create it, you know, and I have to say that if house would have stayed in, in the gay clubs in Chicago, there wouldn't be no house because the gays in Chicago didn't call it house. Frankie didn't call it house. No one didn't. That's what what it was called. Right. That, that term certainly emerged, like I suggested, um, uh, when this convergence happened of, of cultures. And, and I think there's no question about sort of the symptom that you described of uh, challenging uh, environments of being able to be collaborative and unified and, and all these things. But I will also say, and I'm not accepting of it as the state that it should be always, but I, I will say some of that lends itself to what, what is nuanced about Chicago that doesn't you know, exist anywhere else. And, and it lends itself to sort of the Chicago mystique, if you will. But yeah. um, again, I'm not content by it. I, I would love to see and, and I've seen pockets of it. And, um, you know, we, we talk, the community talks about it uh, often when we, when we come together. 
But um, yes, it is a, a phenomenon that impedes uh, the kind of global uh, and, and financial success that we know is due to, uh, to the genre. And I also wanted to go back and just acknowledge that you articulated very well the why, why we do the Vintage House Show, because we are uh, hell-bent on not allowing some other entity to come in here and, and distort and appropriate these stories. We're getting right. them first person, firsthand, and, and our archive and collection is already, I'm, I'm saying it here, is already the largest. Um, I mean, we've got eight years of, of these interviews and conversations, and, and we go Amazing. deep. Amazing. We go deep. We go deep. We go deep. Well, I, I, like I said, I'm I'm honored that you even thought enough of me to 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 do this. Um, um, yeah, I, I was hoping to have a little chat with Lori Branch because it's been some time, but I think it's incredible what you all are doing. And I want to say that just like I talked to Wayne, he was still working at Epic or Columbia Records, and they were doing the old school picnic behind the museum. I said, Wayne, you know what? You need to monetize this and turn this into a festival. He's like, that's a good idea. And look where it is now. I'm gonna to say to you, I feel like if you get the right people involved, maybe not as a as a as a maybe as an ancillary sort of a thing, not necessarily designed to to create that um, for the necessity, but certain people need to be involved, and we need to curate things under this umbrella that you all have created, and really start to build it out. Because if we don't do that, then it's gonna be lost on the next generation. You know, it's like, OK, it's enough for them to go to the archive. And I think it's great to have all this information. But why not also use this platform to create an environment where we can, you know, find the right place in Chicago on, on, a, on a scale that we figure is appropriate to 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 bring this thing out and say, hey, you know, this is an extension of the brand. That's my suggestion. No, so I'm, I'm glad you said that. Uh, you, you know, not patting ourselves on the back, but certainly acknowledging that's been part of our thinking. And the fact that you validated it, um, it says two things to me. One, that we can lean into you as a collaborator, right? When 100%. We do this. And, and two, that there, there is a rationale for it, right? 100%. So, so absolutely um, appreciate that. And yes, it has felt like old home week or afternoon. Uh, again, before we came on air, I, I mentioned that um, I, I was just getting my head together, but um, I certainly remember I'm a uh, 77 to 81 was my high school realm. And so I, I remember and probably had some uh, pluggers somewhere in, in our artifacts. Where did you go to school? I went to St. Francis de Sales. Oh, and, wow. And so, I, you know, we had a very limited pocket of people who were out and involved. Um, unfortunate news um, overnight that uh, uh, Aaron Metzler's uh, brother, Perry Metzler, lost his best friend who was a schoolmate uh, of mine, uh, a guy named Rory Brown. So uh, I remember Rory Brown. Yeah. Shout out to Rory. Um, rest in peace, brother yes, Rory. Peace. He was part of the doctors. 
Yeah, I remember Roy. Well, well, you know, Aaron was my mentor because Aaron lived on 73rd and Clyde. Aaron yes. passed uh, just his last year, rest his, last his soul. Year. Um, Aaron used to uh, used to work. He DJed at a club called um, Huckleberries, which was next door to what was the Esquire Theater across from what used to be Fiorucci on Oak Street. Oh, no. It was yeah. an, it was owned by um, um, the husband of Barbara Eaton, who played I.G. Mugini. Aaron was the house DJ there. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. So that's when I started going to the north side with him. We started dating white girls and was just on. Now I'm valid on Oak Street. I'm at nightlife. I can go to the most happening club on Oak Street because my big brother Aaron is the DJ. And so Aaron took me because he knew all the different spots. Like he knew like the the exclusive kind of like that that Gold Coast kind of scene. Whereas, you know, my other my, my other my cousin took me to further north clubs or further west clubs or you know that kind of thing but i was exposed to all of that but it's funny you mentioned you mentioned perry um because perry was a little bit younger um but but aaron he and aaron took me to the paradise garage for the first time he lived in new york by then so my big brother my mentor i go to new york to visit he's like i'm gonna meet you right here lano at west fourth in washington I mean, West 4th Street and, and 6th Avenue. We're going to go to Washington Square Park. We're going to hang out. And he showed me the ropes that way, you know. And then that night we were at Paradise Garage. And he knew Larry LeVan. So he took me in a DJ booth. So now I know Larry. And I'm, you know, right place, right time. You know, I, I kind of look at, feel like I was kind of the Forrest Gump in this, in this life. Most of what I did, I just stumbled upon by just being inquisitive and, and my energy, you know, I've always been a very, um, you know, inquisitive, but positive energy type of type, type of guy. I don't make enemies. I don't carry bad energy. I'm, I'm always looking to encourage people and 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 find encouragement and 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 help when I can. Um, and that's been the, the narrative in my life and have gotten me where I am. And I'm still growing and still doing, you know, fun things. I'm still I'm still excited about life. I'm still having a good time. This this uh, last um, five or six minutes here, I want to talk about um, the current career, uh, the the model, the mature model. I think you've embraced that term, although um, I, I read in a piece where uh, sort of referring to you as a, you know, mature male model is, is reductive was the term used in the article. Um, <laughs> Talk, talk about now, you know, 35 plus years that you got into the modeling um, career with, you know, great uh, opportunities ahead of you. Um, what? How does that feel now? You said that you're still having fun. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Well, it, the ironic thing is that, you know, back, you know, when I started going to the north side and, you know, 78, 79, um, we started reading GQ magazine and I saw a guy named um, Renal White on the cover of GQ. And that was big for us as young men of color living yeah. in segregated Chicago. Um, and so, you know, that made it like a reality, like, oh, well, I can be a model. So I was one of the few people that had the bravery to walk around the south side of Chicago and say I'm a model, even though I wasn't. But I would read GQ and then go to the north side and, and, and shop at vintage stores. And I dressed like the, the, the people in the mag- the guys in the magazine. 
And, you know, I mean, Chicago, where I'm from in, in Chicago is a little bit rough. I mean, South Shore now is probably rougher than it's ever been, but it was always a little on the edgy side. Um, but since I grew up there, I knew a lot of those guys that ended up in, you know, doing different things. Um, but it was still very brave to say you were a model. But anyway, I didn't get the opportunity to go to the level that I am now. Yes. took 35 years, but I arrived. Um, but I want to say that 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 term um, mature model, I think I sort of broke the, 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 the mold for what a mature model is because, you know, I do a lot of things with the younger guys and I'm not really booked as an older man. Usually when they book me, I'm with a young Asian girl or a, a younger uh, a, a, a white woman or European. Rarely have I been booked with a with a woman of color or African American, and rarely have I appeared in um, any um, adverts directed towards the black consumer. Um, I only recently, last year, I think it was, I was included in, a, in an Essence magazine top twenty models that you should know. I was one of them, ironically, and that was the first time I'd say I've been acknowledged by the African American community in terms of of, of fashion. Um, but I think because I, I do a lot of different things. Like I'm not just the older, mature guy that sits in the car with my grandkid and my gray haired uh, wife and we, you know, are brushing our teeth or wearing dentures or, you know, or I'm, 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 I'm doing a erectile dysfunction campaign. You know, I do everything from Zara, H&M to J. Crew, Banana Republic. I mean, I've done it all. Um, so I'm a bit of an anomaly when it comes to men of color, first of all, and then, you know, men of my age category. So um, I think that that's why the writer called it reductive, because I'm not your typical or what, you know, your mother would think a mature model is. There are guys that still do the dad things and the granddad things. And I've done sort of similar things. I can hit a Father's Day thing with a younger African-American male model for Father's Day for Macy's. But for the most part, you know, I'm a male model. Um, I have clients, you know, I, I'm over here. I, I mean, I've made a lot of my name, you know, here. I've walked the runways in Paris and Milan. Um, so I've been fortunate by virtue of the fact that I believe my attitude towards how I see fashion and also how I view myself and how I like to present myself lent, lend itself or gave way to stylists and creative directors and photographers seeing me in the light that I really am as opposed to, because I'm still that same enthusiastic cat from the South side of Chicago that was doing parties in 1980. That's I got that same energy. I'm still in, you know, I still believe in him. I'm still making records. I don't have to make records. I don't need that. I don't do it for money. I do it because I put, put it out on my own label. I finance yes. it myself. You know, my studio is here in Amsterdam, but like I said, my records are pressed in and distributed out of Detroit because Detroit has the, 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 the main line to the, to the direction I was going and they were embracing it as opposed to Chicago. And I guess people just don't want to embrace what I do. Um, I guess that was like a little bit of a hint. <laughs> uh, hopefully some of our people in Chicago that watch this will think. I mean, and the thing is, is I'm, I, I'm all over. I'm not, I'm not local by any means. I'm definitely well, well spread out positively in, in a way that I think lends itself to opportunity 
to expose things from a different perspective um, that I think is unique to who I am and what I do. I think there are people um, um, in the in the dance music scene from Chicago that obviously are international, but they don't also have the access to the things that I do on the scale that I do because of what I do as a model. You know what I mean? Yeah. Most yeah. people don't connect the dot. They don't join the dots on that at first until they find out. Like I just did a mix for a uh, loose FM that it'll, it'll be airing on February 3rd. And um, the guy didn't realize until maybe two days ago that I'm actually Lono Brazil. He heard my record, loved my record because it's vinyl only this, my latest project for drum pattern. And he heard it and was like, I got to find this guy. He contacted me and it's like, because I have a, I have an Instagram for drum pattern, which you, you don't know it's me. It doesn't say my name anywhere. And I've got followers and I've interacted with people. But he said, would I do a mix? And they love my mix. Um, and he was like, wow, wait, you're Lono Brazil? I'm like, yeah, but let's keep that quiet. I want people to just dig the music if they do. I mean, it'll eventually come out, I guess. But that's not what I want to put in front. I don't want to put the model Lono Brazil in front. I don't want to put uh, Lano Brazil, the guy that comes from Chicago, that was part of the original think tank that helped develop the, 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 the blueprint, so to speak, of what became Chicago House. I want it to stand on its own as a piece of music that people either like or they don't like. And if they feel like seeing how deep the rabbit hole go, then they'll find this show and, and hear, this, hear the story because this is the first time I've ever talked about it in totality and, and, and this candid and this, you know, straightforward. We are um, incredibly uh, humbled and appreciative at the Vintage House Show, certainly on behalf of Lauren Lowry and Lori Branch and myself. Um, th this will be a one for the ages, as they say. Uh, a discussion that we hope, um, you know, as your life and adventure uh, continues on, uh, we welcome the opportunity to have you back. Uh, don't go too far from us because, as uh, I mentioned um, moments ago, right, we're certainly happy to hear you uh, sort of validate our, our reason for uh, doing this, our purpose. And um, and would love to collaborate with you. Uh, as yeah, we... please. Off offline, you know, when when we get a chance in, in days or weeks to come, let's yeah. just kind of touch base because I feel like you know because I work for major labels um, as a record executive, and then also I've worked for different clothing brands where I've uh, consulted, and I still consult um, when I get the time. Um, um, the point is, is that there's a couple of different things I see here that I feel like would be uh, uh, great pieces that I can bring a bit of expertise and or relationships that could sort of evolve this for the purpose of what the original concept is. You know, these ancillary things are only designed to sort of act as a support system at the way I perceive it and yes. allow allow us to uh, uh, do you know, what we set out to do. I mean, my my uh, enthusiasm about doing this comes from the fact that you all have done such a great job with the preservation and, and, and wanting to, you know, do this and, and, and have been doing it. 
it, it needs to be done because it's not being done. I mean, nobody is really thinking to, to do, nobody's thought to do it. You would think this would be common, but it just isn't. Well, and it should be a no brainer, but it isn't. I, I got to give super props and um, to the vision of, you know, our founder, Lauren Lowry. I, I joined four years into um, the venture, but um, you know, it was Lauren's vision as a um, WNUR uh radio uh dj or host herself and uh you know she brought lori and uh i joined them uh in in the venture and have brought certainly some additional vision and uh support and and stories i my in short quick uh claim to fame was i uh lay claim to being the first house music publicist or, you know, PR oh. communicator dedicated solely to the genre of, of house music. Um, and, and then of course um, I too was a DJ and, and still have a, a inkling uh, for it. It's still in, in my heart. Just need to find the time. I, in fact, DJ with Joe smooth at, at the university of Illinois for a oh, while. Wow a year um we had a collective down there uh, joe and that's, cedric Ball, that's pretty incredible jerry McAllister and others so yeah so well, you that, know what's funny you, wait yeah. let me tell you this story real quick jerry McAllister lived on my block yes he did live in south shore yeah on right. he, he he lived no he lived on 70 74th and phillips i lived on 73rd and phillips oh, okay he moved so, around in that south shore area yeah but i introduced him to house music because he was still in, in elementary school or early high school and not, okay i didn't introduce him to house music i introduced him to clubbing from my perspective because i probably jerry was probably when i saw him running around my neighborhood he might have been seven or eight years old yes. so i was a little bit older than him and you know he lived on the corner and and you know, his family was a little bit stricter him his brother timmy and his sister who went to school in the gina. same grade with my sister yeah, yeah gina she was she was best friends with one of my younger sisters but i had cassettes that frankie would give me and i would play them in my car or out the window of my apartment and jerry would come down the block and he was one of him and timmy were one of the few that would hang out and wanted to hear my stories and hear about what was going on because he heard it firsthand from me and later went on to do what he did. Um, but yeah, Jerry came from my sort of circle of influence, so to speak, him and Tim, oh. I would say. Well, uh, that's why it was old homely. Jerry and I were uh, roommates in college. at, at Amazing. Yeah. Small and, world. Uh, we were just exchanging texts the other day. So, um, he, yeah, definitely uh, another great uh, contributor and uh, love that there's that lineage and, and connection. Yeah, yeah, that's it, crazy. Small world, man. Six it, degrees of separation, maybe even less. It, it, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I'm claiming two, Lionel. <laughs> there <laughs> two you go. I'm with, I'm with you on that. On, on um, a closing note, anything you want to share uh, with the audience to, to close us out? Yeah, well, only that, um, you know, I, I'd like to invite people to seek out what I'm doing musically. My record label is called Nightcore Records. Um, the, 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 the basis and the, 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 the identity of, of what I'm trying to establish with Nightcore is to, you know, evolve it like 
a tracks record or a DJ International or State Street Records or these early seminal Chicago house music record labels. Um, for the most part right now, it's it's my music, but I'm looking to sign other artists and, and help, you know, distribute and or, you know, get it out and, and, and help maybe if it's a younger artist, help with the artist development and help show what show them what I know and, and lend my expertise to, to evolving what they want to do in in conjunction with what I'm doing. Um, but Nightcore, um, um, you know, the reason why I named it Nightcore is because I believe that dance music at its very core comes from nightlife. Um, yes. Without nightlife, now it's different. You can get music streaming. Before, if you wanted to hear what was new and what was happening, what was you had to go to the club and you had to, it, it happened at night. So it's like, you know, for me, it just kind of fell together. But um, look for more from Nightcore Records. I'm, I'm, I'm finishing up a record now here in Amsterdam, which I'm going to do one digitally and I'm going to do one again on vinyl through through my sources in Detroit and also through a distributor here in Europe. Um, I've been asked by another uh, label in, in uh, Italy to, to do a record for their label. So there's a lot of music coming from from my from my uh, environment. Um, but Drum Pattern is the name. Nightcore is the label. Um, you know, follow me on on Instagram and and all of that. And let's communicate. Um, and again, let's collaborate. You know, Chicago. That's my home. That's 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 who I am. That's what made me who I am. Even though I've you know gathered a lot of things along the way from other parts of the world. At the core, I'm a Chicagoan, and um, I'm proud of the fact that you know I was part of something that changed the trajectory of what nightlife became and what uh, dance music became. Because the truth of the matter is, if it if it wouldn't have been for house music, because again, I want to I, I want to go back on this. I apologize if I'm overextending my welcome here, but um, as I said. You know, Larry LeVan played music from New York because New York never stopped making dance music after disco died. You know, you had the Peach Boys, you had Colonel Abrams, you had West End Records, you had, you know, uh, 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 um, what's my man name who did? He, he just passed the engineer. Um, he did. Um, I'm a big freak. And um, uh, uh, Carmichael, I think his name is. Um, yeah but anyway but my point is is that dance music you know these guys were still making music in these top-notch studios with bands i mean luther vandross he was one of the singers with jocelyn brown and change you know that was on ray cavallo's label so new york was still making dance music well up until the late 80s to the early 90s chicago came through with this house music sound and this, you know, one man show, a guy with a drum machine and a synthesizer yes. and was able to make these records and create this raw sound that changed everything. And not to say that wasn't happening other places. It just got solidified and, and just the name. It was just the perfect storm, so to speak. The name house music, why no one really wants to admit or, or everybody's not in agreement on what where it came from. I've heard varying stories um but the point is is that i'm proud of the fact that chicago 
did contribute, like you said, with jazz and blues. We made a, a, a major contribution and I still want to uh, celebrate that sound um, and, and evolve that, 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 that narrative, you know, from the standpoint of the kind of music that I'm doing on Nightcore. If you hear my, my record, uh, it's called Rainbow Beach Volume One. Uh, you'll hear my influences from, you know, the, the middle eighties to the, to the late eighties, you'll hear all those influences. Um, and like I said, I found my, my MPC and I got it out of storage with the disc. I've got records that I'm going to produce that are just as raw as anything you would think. A, 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 a novice trying to make music on a drum machine by himself in a room with a tape deck, that's what it's going to be. So that's, that's my continued contribution to Chicago House. And I want to keep the conversation going musically and continue to contribute as long as I'm able, you know, and that, that's where those, I'm at. We, we welcome those contributions. Uh, and certainly you've got a, you know, a platform to amplify those uh, here with the Vintage House Show. Uh, we, we do, um, you know, uh, have DJs within the crew. And so we're happy to put some of that music into rotation uh, as well as play it on, on the show. Um, Lionel Brazil, it has been more than um, a notion to have you on and to have you share uh, so candidly and openly with us. Uh, please I appreciate do, you, Mega. Uh, continue doing what you're doing. Um, if we get, oh, if you get to Chicago, we've, we've got to connect and vice versa if we get to uh, Amsterdam. Uh, yeah, try try to try to mark your calendar for ADE in October of this year. Um, th that's a very important time to be here, and yes. perhaps we can figure out a way to uh, you know collaborate somehow and and participate in something with what I'm doing with Nightcore and what you're doing with the Vintage House Show and the archives and that story. Maybe there's something there too. Let's 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 explore that. Absolutely, it is. Uh, going down as a, a high priority follow up for sure. Cool, cool, cool. So thank you again for yes, sir. the time, um, the perspective and insights and uh, and your contributions and uh, continue to be well. Thank we'll look you, for sir. you in, uh, in all those great uh, Zara bonos uh, and uh, the many ads that the brands are, are tapping into your Persona. Yeah, there's more coming. There's more coming for sure. Thanks for listening to the Vintage House Show podcast. Please subscribe and share and check us out live. WNUR 89.3 FM Wednesdays at 10 o'clock.